Welcome, everybody, to Draft Politics. I'm your host, Steve, and with me here at this delightful bar, it's EJ. Yes. Here we are in what I like to call the Chicago pause. It is the interregnum period between the general election and the inevitable runoff because of the stupid way we've set up our municipal elections. Yes. So welcome, everybody. Well, you know... We can get to that in a moment, but, you know, if they weren't set up the way they are, it'd probably be worse for us right now. But, anyhow, uh, we'll get into that later. <coughs> Here but we today, are at Forbidden Root. Yes, Forbidden Root there. So there are two locations for Forbidden Root. This in is Chicago. The, yes, in Chicago. I was going to get to that. There's another one in Columbus, Ohio. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, this is the Cultivate location, which is uh, where a another restaurant that I used to love, Bando Bohemia, used to be located. Uh, but it's a delightful space. They have very good beer, excellent food. Um, so I love coming here. I, I actually think, now I haven't been to Moody Tongue because I'm a terrible slacker. Yes. We should fix this thing. Um, but I think they have the best food of any of the breweries. They're Michelin the rated, if I'm not mistaken, Moody Tongue is. Moody Tongue is, yes. Yeah. But here at Cultivate. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, like Cultivate, a, yes. I think. I, I mean, yes, Peace Pizza is very yeah. good. Very good in a very specific yeah. way, but generally Half the food, food is good. I mean, there's good. actually a lot of have good food, but I mean, one of the things you see in tap rooms is they tend to be less food centric, um, and I think probably the licensing is different. Whatever. Plus, you can have dogs if you don't have food. So there you sure. go. And I like dogs. I like dogs. So and kids and dogs. You can have dogs kids, kids, but no dogs. But no dogs. Uh, so so forbidden root. Really yes. good. We'll talk about it more between segments. Uh, first of all, I'd like to say, get better soon. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, who fell this week in a hotel, strangely. Why yes. he was in a hotel, I, I don't know. I, I hope I hope his suffering ends soon. I mean... <laughs> Interpret that as you will. <laughs> I, I want him to be in a state where we can feel good about making fun of him again. Okay. 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 You know, right now I don't feel great. Maybe I don't I mean, feel great about it. I you know, feel I mean, good. yeah. I mean, you know, it might be good if, uh, you know, a state which happens to have a Democratic governor got a chance to appoint a new senator. But, eh, I mean, you know, I'm not. I don't know. I wouldn't say. Okay, fair point. Yeah. Fair point. Fair point. So, anyway. So, you know. It's, it's really interesting right now in the <laughs> Senate, if I'm honest, because you've got three senators who are kind of out. Right now. Yeah. And Mitch McConnell, you know, maybe he tripped, maybe not. Yeah. But it's good, actually, for Democrats that the Republicans are down one. Yeah. Because the Democrats are down two. Feinstein's, I mean, she's just wandering around northern Virginia. One Presumably. can presume. Yeah. Just, oh, I don't know where I am. Uh, and obviously, Fetterman is, is still kind of recovering yes he's going yeah I mean, he's going through he's is he still an inpatient at this point i don't know i don't recall but you know he's getting some therapy uh you know obviously you know there's a lot of a lot of you know strain around all of what's happened with his medical health procedures yeah. and all that sort of stuff so you know it makes perfect sense that he'd be there right now and so you know hopefully he gets better soon i gotta tell you though group therapy with john fetterman sitting next to you has got to be a little weird Right, you're sitting in a circle. Yeah, it's supposed to be very open. You've got this dude who's like six foot nine, <laughs> three hundred and twenty pounds. Yeah. 
Like, yeah, not not a not a not a slight man. No, <laughs> and, and he's like, hey, look at all the tattoos of people who died on my arm, and they're like, did you kill them? No, 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 no. just no, to be was, clear. I was in Braddock. He's got a very, like, kind of big teddy bear personality, though. So, like, you you walk in the room, you'd be like, oh, my. And then you'd be like, oh, he's cool. All right. Nice guy. Yeah. Uh, So, there's today in Senate Health. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I know everybody was looking at, hey, this segment brought to you by WebMD. Right. No, no, it wasn't brought to you by anything. No, because I'm not convinced I have cancer from that segment, so it can't be that. Uh, Also, really good news for everybody, especially comedians, uh, George Santos has already declared his intention to run in 2024. Are we sure he isn't lying about that? No. Well, <laughs> I, we know he isn't because he also said he's won the election in 2024 and also is going to be mayor of the moon. That's He won both at the same time. It's pretty pretty amazing. Here's, here's the problem. I'm not sure if you're joking. <laughs> we'll find out in 2024. Right, exactly. That's what he said, actually. Prove me wrong. Pull the moon. Go. How do you know? There you go. How uh, do you know? Anyhow, uh, Fox News. Somebody <laughs> uh, listed in here as Fox News continues to suck, but uh, you know, I mean, I th- you know, we've known Fox News is uh, propaganda for a long time. We knew that they were full of lies. We just didn't really quite know the extent of it. I suppose the sort of raw. Uh, expression of it uh, that we've seen in recent court filings. Is there anything particular you want to get into on this topic? I I mean, here's the deal. We've seen all the filings from our friends at Dominion Voting Systems and their $1.6 billion lawsuit against them. And just publishing all these text messages. And we keep getting new filings, which just keep uncovering things. Yeah. Things like, you know, the Murdoch saying, well... We have to win the Senate and support the Republicans at all costs, which are like, oh, okay, well, thank you for telling me that I'm just confirming all of my conspiracy theories. And if we had any kind of like functioning like election oversight right now, you would expect that the um, uh, I forget the committee, the the FEC, thank you. You would think that the FEC would step in here and consider that an in kind contribution and would cause all kinds of problems. But hmm. Well, remember, the FEC board is made up of three Republicans and three Democrats. So you'll uh, never, and you have to bipartisan have majority to do anything yes. by uh, yeah, gridlockianship. But also things like Tucker Carlson in those text messages saying, I hate Donald Trump. I hate him. He destroys everything he touches. That's all he wants to do is destroy. And then that day going out like, I'm going to take these. 44,000 hours of footage from January 6th and cut it down to a minute and seven seconds where he was pointing out the fact that Capitol Police were not shooting dead the uh, QAnon shaman as proof that it was all just peaceful. It's going to be interesting to see how Donald Trump treats that information. Because oh, you think he knows that information? Well, see, this is the thing. Like, does he know this information? I mean, most of his news source is going to be Fox News, and they're certainly not going to talk about it. Um, at some point, somebody will potentially have some advantage to outing him, uh, outing Tucker Carlson about it. Present, you know, like, yeah. I don't know. Like, I feel like at some point that's going to be bad for Tucker Carlson, and I'm going to 
I'm here for it. I'm going to enjoy that. I will bring the popcorn. It'll be Garrett's. Cheddar caramel mix. <laughs> Good. Good. Thank you for being very specific. Yes. Tucker, just so you know, this is how Chicago will enjoy your demise politically, but not yes. any other way because he was born a billionaire, right? Right. Into the Swanson family legacy. Yeah. Hardworking man. Uh, Anyhow. I mean, it is, it is very interesting to watch the snake eat itself, right? With Tucker Carlson, all those text messages, those things. Mike Mother Pence at the Gridiron Club, Gridiron Dinner this week saying like, well, actually, Donald Trump endangered me with his statements. And Donald Trump coming back on Truthy Social and saying, well, well, actually, it was Mike Pence. If he had just caved and sent the votes back to the states, then there wouldn't have been any violence. Yeah. Which, which is an interesting thing to say when you are potentially under indictment for maybe inciting a riot. Right. To say, actually, I did incite the riot, but somebody else didn't stop it. Right. That is a... <laughs> I mean, again, and we're here for it. We're yeah. here for the, the carnage, and what we hope is that carnage turns into no viable candidates in 2024. Yeah. To go against our ver- barely viable candidate because of age, whatever. But we're going to be interested in this. And here's the other thing I would toss out here about all of the things lawsuit related with Fox News. So $1.6 billion sounds like a lot of money, is a lot of money. It's not as much money as they have in cash or cash on hand. So the outcomes of that, let's say. Well, it depends. How much do they have in SVB? We'll get to that. <laughs> we will get to that. Good segue. That was a magnificent segue. But they, the, the first thing you ask is, okay, so what happens? Well, it's a publicly traded company, right? So they could get rid of the Murdochs. Yep. And the shareholders could. Um, the other piece of that is that there is a second lawsuit waiting in the wings, and that is Smartmatic for $2.4 billion, which taken in together is more cash yeah. than they have. Which is all the more incentive probably for Fox to settle on this, because if they can settle, then they can kind of treat that separately whereas if they get found guilty presumably that will make it easier for smartmatic to win i mean this is my fine lawyering as a non-lawyer yeah, speaking exactly. here but we are not lawyers. it sounds sounds smart to me so um, i'm going with there's it. still going to be precedent all this stuff is out there right yeah. like the barn door is the cows oh, yeah. I mean, have already left all the discovery has been discovered so yeah. there we go so uh, really interesting stuff there, but that was a great segue, and I'm sorry that I didn't go right to it, which is... No, no, that's fine. I, I, I did it in an interrupting way, so that's my fault. No, bank so it's panic, all good. Right? But yes, uh, Silicon uh, the Valley economy is, is blowing up all around us, and we're all going to die. Uh, or, or maybe it's not quite that bad. Um, so if you've been paying attention at all to financial news, uh, and it's, it's in one of those states where the financial news is so dire that it's sort of seeping into the rest of reality for us. Right. Um, but uh, Silicon Valley Bank, which uh, deals a lot with the financing of, as you might imagine, firms in Silicon Valley. So lots of tech, VC, uh, not as much crypto, but there's another bank, Signature Bank, which yeah. has also had problems, which did a lot more in crypto. You know, kind of what you would expect. Um, and what happened was... Uh, Decentralized, bro. <laughs> right? So SVB was uh, having some struggles. Uh, they were... And th- basically, there there was... 
people got wind of those struggles and a bunch of VC people and whatever sort of all started withdrawing their money from SVB because they didn't want to be the last one. Like Peter Thiel. Yes, like Peter Thiel. Um, and they didn't basically didn't want to be the last one standing when the music stopped, right? right? So there was a run of like $42 billion. And part of the problem was that SVB backed their uh, deposits with treasuries, which seems like a perfectly reasonable thing to do. Treasuries are very stable, but... <laughs> Where the hell is Kai Rizdal right now? Like, right? yield on the twenty-year T note is. Let let's Steve gets his economic nerd on. So, yeah. uh, the 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 value of their treasuries because they bought their treasuries, you know, like maybe a year or two ago, and you know the you know the yield on those was like one percent, and now it's like three percent. So those have less value now if they're trying to sell them to get cash to pay people right. who are trying to get their money out. Standard bank run. So it's not like they. It's not like they did anything particularly speculative. It's just that they were all that their, their depositor money, all their investments were all in kind of one part of the economy that's been sort of hardest hit lately. Yeah. So they were they were not diversified. There was zero diversity in how they invested their money. Yes. And which is ironic. And we'll get to the irony in a minute. But like, so because of the the homogeneity of their investments. And the backstop for those investments, they were susceptible to both rate hikes, which they should have seen coming. Shakes had vigorously and weakness in that part of the economy. Yeah. And the combination of those things or volatility, let's say, in that part of the economy. Right. And the the combination of those things left them exposed and the government took over. Now HSBC and, and this was a big deal, right? Because it was a trendy bank, right? You had, you know, everybody in Silicon Valley like, oh, you should be using SVB. Right. right? And, like, like, what would happen is they would have as, like, part of a financing deal for some company. They would have requirements about how much money they have in deposit at the bank. So, like, Roku had a bunch of money there because of the deals they had around the financing of yeah. their company. Right? And that's that's a very standard thing. Like, you do a public offering. You're saying, hey, as part of what we're doing with this, we're going to have, you know, this much on deposit, you know, to you know, for the good of the bank, whatever. Right. Which is all fine as long as the bank continues to have the money. <laughs> right. And so what's also interesting is they employed former staffers of uh, Speaker McCarthy during the Trump administration to help roll back regulation. Right. Specifically things under Dodd-Frank that were meant to address some of the weaknesses and the exposures that they had. Yes. And because, so... Hey, Deregulation is good. Well, and what it was is that under Dodd-Frank, any bank above $50 billion in assets was subject to stress testing. And basically mm -hmm. that there was an official process where they'd be looking at them and they'd have to like figure out like what happens if we have some sort of systemic problem? Can they hold up to it? Et because of 2008. Because right? of 2008. Yes, exactly. And so um, what happened in 2018 under Trump was that they rolled back that those protections. So now it only applies, I think, above like 200 billion or yeah, some, some the gap number, there. Yeah. And so a lot of banks actually up until that point were only, they'd get up to near 50 billion in, in value and they would just kind of like Pause. try to stay there because yeah. there was a regulatory cost to going over that threshold. And yeah. so they're all like, well, this is, you know, economic efficiency and, and et cetera, et cetera. Inevitably what happens, of course, when they were allowed to go over that 50 billion, 
they started doing mergers and acquisitions and making bigger banks and, you know, you know where this bigger, goes. Bigger, worse banks. This is where we go. So. And so here we are. Now that I've put you to sleep with a bunch of economics no. babble. <laughs> it's not babble. It's dribble. So the, right. <laughs> the, the thing about this is we're in this state. They've got this bad portfolio of assets sort of backing up what should be the cash on hand. Now they don't have any cash on hand. They've got no lo- liquidity. The margins are terrible. Yes. Um, the, you know, all of these tech firms don't know how they're going to pay their employees. Right. Because basically the bank just went out of business at that point because like, they couldn't, can't pay them back. FDIC comes in and says, we're done here. Yeah. And, and keeping in mind that under normal FDC, FDIC there go. rules... $250,000 is the max you're getting back if, you know, if the bank is shuttered. Um, and so, which is, and being that it was a commercial bank, there weren't many customers who had under $250,000. No. And no. so, you know, basically Roku would have gone out of business. Other companies would have gone out of business because they just don't have, they would have had no liquidity to pay people, pay their yeah. vendors, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, 100%. So, yeah, Roku would have gone out of business. Yes. Roku would have gone out of business, um, you know, other companies. And the real concern became that this was going to be, you know, a systemic problem that healthy companies were just going to go out of business because of a liquidity crunch. Right. And so over the weekend, the government tried to figure out what to do about this. They tried to sell the bank, like find somebody to come in and take it over and thus make the depositors whole. And they did sell parts of it. And they did sell parts of it. But ultimately... What the bank, what the government decided to do was back anybody who had money in there to say you have your money. Anybody deposited? Yes, yes. Anybody deposit, like investors, right. all that kind of thing. That's that's its own thing. Yeah. Um, in in a move, I like to call. And Janet Yellen was asked about this on Sunday, and they're like, "So what are you going to do?" And she's like, "Oh, they're kind of screwed," which I like to call Yellen shrugged. Yes. Yes. So, because because all of the people who were so big and bullish on this this bank and wanted it to be all deregulated, et cetera, et cetera, um, were doing so because, you know, they're part of that culture of rugged individualism, right. meritocracy. Right. Or Ian Rand. So yeah. yeah. I wonder how many of those uh, those VC tech people are very much of the libertarian, rugged individualism that we're all like whining on Twitter about. Like, if they don't bail us out, we're going to just destroy the economy. Blah blah blah. Like, yeah, it was all just of like, them. You know, and like the thing of it is, is like none none of what happened with this is particularly novel. It's the same kind no. of thing that happened. You know, anytime we had some growth industry, you had a bunch of greedy people who ended up, you know, getting too invested in something that then it goes down. And you know, I mean, it's, yeah. it's the same pattern that's repeated over and over again. And and really, the solution here is getting that regulation back in place, and uh, and Powell resigning would be nice too. Uh, He's not resigning. Yeah, I know. That uh, guy goes nowhere, man. So Powell, who's in charge of the Fed, um, is kind of guilty for on two counts here. One, he was one of the people pushing for a rollback of that bank regulation. Um, yeah, and that's true. Two. True. He's been the one who's been, well, I mean, I guess the Fed in general has been pushing for interest rate increases to fight inflation. Um, How's that working out for him? Well, right. Um, a week ago, what was, let's see, it was uh, 
let me let me start that over. It was a, about a week before SVB went under. The letter that the Fed sent to Congress talking about what is the current state of the economy and the health of the banking system and all that said basically everything's fine. We good. We good. And then a week later, now they're having to take dramatic intervention to bail things out. Right. And and of course, because of the way the market works, people saw oh oh my god, SVB went under. So like Schwab went down twenty three percent or something right. on Monday. We're like ah! Everybody's panicking. Yeah. And and look, banks have some of their margins in their stock, right? So that's part of their liquidity. Yep. So so you can have a bank run, a traditional bank run, where everybody takes all their money out um, and maybe uh, gets it and puts it in their mattress like I did on Monday from my Schwab bank account. Right. Or it could be that their stock goes down to nothing, right? And the, the leverage... The, the liquidity that they have through either direct or indirect via loans of that stock of that you know of that equity is now worthless right and so well and, and a big systemic concern that came up here was that you know a lot of the reason that that SVB ran into problems was the value of the treasuries they were trying to sell everybody every bank has treasuries like that around is the like world. the standard it's not yeah, a around the world. like yeah. this is the standard issue like the rainy day funds rainy day fund is a, yeah. is a u.s treasury so the freedom eagle right is the most stable currency yes. in the world so yeah so everybody's a little nervous about that for some reason so anyhow oh anyway um so next week on draft economics and monetary policy <laughs> God, that doesn't modern have, monetary theory yeah does not have really that good a ring to it. Yeah. Doesn't quite work as well. But oh, well. yes, but it is also political because, of course, as soon as that happened, we get all of the sort of, you know, right wingish folks saying it's because the bank went woke. They went right. woke. They had all these diversity. They, yeah, and, they and when, in, in actuality, it was their lack of diversity in banking things that caused the problem yes and so when you saw all the announcements from other banks around the world saying hey guys look we only had 12 dollars in it you know in svp or what we would call affiliated risk you know affiliated risk then people were like oh yeah their risk was diversified svps was not yeah. it was homogeneous yeah. there was no wokeness yeah and and I'm going to speculate here, but I'm going to guess that most of the people in charge of most of the money that is flowing through SVB are white dudes. And I would imagine that if it was more diverse, more woke, perhaps, that the business decisions and all that being made would be different and SVB would still be around. Pure speculation. I have no idea if any of that's true. No, that's fair. You know why we can do that? Because it's a free country and nobody listens to us. That's right. <laughs> Hello, Norway. Anyhow. Hello. Hello, Norway. Hey, in Norway, if you're still here. Stick around. We got you. All right. I got you. All right. Yeah. So, yeah. And I, I just one, one last thing on the wokeness thing. Like, that is the default setting for, uh, for the right-wing media right now is anything that has a problem is because it's too woke. Right. Whatever it is. Like, right. we're going to just, like, you know, it's like you, you, like, you have a debate where a politician answers the question they want to answer instead of the, an the one that's been asked. Classic Kissinger, it's, but yes. It's, it, it, or... Palin was the most aggressively wrong on that one. She just like 
it would have nothing to do with it. She just start talking about something. But um, she may not have understood the question. That's entirely possible. But that's what they do now, and every the answer is always woke, 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 woke. Well, and you know, I'm sure that what they did was they said, "Oh my God, it's going under." They pulled up the board of directors and the C-suite, and they were like, "Are any of these folks trans?" Or maybe in a drag show? Right. Oh, shit. We don't know what to do. Right. That was really what it was. Of course. We'll just say that their policies, I guess, must have been woke. Maybe maybe somebody underneath them. Uh, because they're in Silicon Valley, they were probably forced to hire a woman. Uh, they don't know how to pronounce it. Yeah. And then things got woke and things got bad. Yes. Clearly. <laughs> because right now... The culture war narrative from the right is so real. And it's this wokeness. We're going to make sure that, you know, sort of universities only teach a certain perspective, that the whites were always right, um, that uh, anybody with... I mean, the reality is there are over 400 bills in the last four months in state legislatures trying to eliminate, you know, trans folks. And, you know, it's not just abortion, like, like abortion and women's rights. Like it's, it's anything that is not non white, straight Christian male, male pretty yeah. much. Um, also, I'm just going to say, we're segueing beautifully tonight. Like, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, solid segues. <laughs> really solid segues. Um, the beers, 8%. The segues, smooth. Yes. <laughs> um, if you are a trans person in the U.S. right now, it's terrifying. Yeah. It is, it is islands of safety. Yep. Um, it is... Fear of 2024. Yeah. Right? Like, it's all of those things. And you hear rhetoric from people and you... Well, and, and you know, there's the, there's the legislation that's happening in states and, and, and all of that. But ultimately, the, the focus on this rhetoric spreads well across the borders of those states. And so yeah. there's a danger everywhere right now around there's this. A da- and, um, and also because... You know, Republican candidates are already jockeying for who's the most anti-everything, yes, um, pro-Christian nationalist. Yeah, they're all competing for that thirty percent that's loyal to Trump at right. this point, right? And unfortunately, right now, you know, DeSantis has a lot of power, right? So Florida, you know, in Florida right now, they're pushing laws that say if you, you know, maybe want to talk about the governor. You have to register with the government. Yeah. If you, um, if you are maybe maybe you've gotten a divorce, and uh, your partner has custody of the child, in Florida they're pushing laws right now that say you can essentially take the child regardless of whatever uh, previous judges have said, if you think or can not even credibly state that they're being exposed to woke ideas. Right. Um, so, like, let's say 
let's say that you, you know, you took your kid to a pride parade in, you know, in Illinois or California or some state like that. The Florida law not only says that your, you know, the partner who lives there could could come to your state and kidnap your kid and bring him back to Florida and bring them back to Florida and be protected by Florida. And I don't know how the hell that stands up in any kind of court system. But at the same time, once it once that's in place, and yeah. now you're talking about adjudicating it, how many how much time does that take? Yeah. Whatever, whatever. It means like there's serious trauma and disruption happening, and you know, so even then, it's still a problem, even if it is eventually found to be completely a bunch of shit. Yeah, exactly. And these are going in place all over the country. Yeah, Texas. You know, they're they're expanding their sort of bounty system where first it was, you know, Texas citizens could essentially get thirty five thousand dollars for saying that, you know, somebody helped somebody else get an abortion. And now there are three women who have been uh, sued by a man for this, you know, for aiding and abetting an abortion. Like this is terrifying stuff. Yeah. This is terrifying stuff. And, you know, we've talked previously about not knowing where to care about things. Yeah. Because we're in the middle of a municipal election, and there are some scary things here. Um, We've got things at the national level that are close at hand. We've got things that are far at hand. What do you, what's your, your distance of terror if you will, yeah, about it. And so where do you put your energy? And I think that's something that we all have to decide. <sighs> One thing I think we're not going to spend time on. I, I, I was going to, you know, we were going to spend some time on some, you know, legal troubles that make us feel good. Legal troubles for people like Donald Trump. Um, uh, we spent more time educating people on monetary policy and how the Fed works um, than talking about things like, the upcoming indictments of Donald Trump and his his you know surrounding crew. Um, the best thing about this, and I would recommend this, is go find uh, Michael Cohen, Trump's old fixer. He's got a podcast. It's amazing. It is amazing. Yeah, he's been to the grand jury. He's like he's got somebody consulting him on the things he can and can't say. It's really good. Yeah. I mean, and it, I, like, I don't, I don't like or respect the guy that much. I think he's just trying to make a dollar. Anybody who worked for Trump at some point is a piece of shit. We knew this. But, yeah. But. But it's entertaining. My enemy's enemy, yada, yada. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> it's like when my kids beat each other up. I don't want this thing, but it's still entertaining. <laughs> I could win $10,000 on America's Funniest Home Videos. All right. Can we flip? Can we flip to international? Let's flip to international. Sure. Okay. So, um, I, I just want to touch very briefly on the Ukraine as a segue into another thing. I uh, had a Ukrainian uh, driver today uh, took a lift over to this bar because 8% beers, A4 mentioned. Um, and we were talking about how he was uh, received in the country here in the U.S. previously and now. And he said something about how his name is hard to pronounce and people didn't get it. And that people tried harder after the invasion. Yeah. And that, I, you know, I don't know how it made him feel. Um, but it made me feel pretty good. Like, I was like, hey, p- 
people are listening and paying attention and more people than I thought were paying attention. Right. Um, so that was, that was really, really quite nice. Um, really, really great guy. Um, but then we switched to Norway. And, you know, we've got a big, big following in Norway. I would, I would suffice to say we're probably the number two or three Chicago beer and politics-based po- podcast in Norway. Right. Yes. Maybe even the leading yes. Chicago beer and politics-based podcast in, in Norway. Norway. Yes. Um, but I was asking about, you know, what are the things in Norway that are interesting right now politically? And it was a really great point. So what I learned was that Norway put in a law in the 50s about exporting weapons. And, you know, the U.S. really has no compunction about exporting weapons right. to anybody. Like the government has to sign off on it, but they're pretty loose I mean, with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're probably being paid off by somebody. I mean... Eisenhower, who was a general, talked about the military-industrial complex. Right. It is absolutely real. It's not a conspiracy theory. This is just a thing. Um, so they passed a law that said, if we're going to send weapons to a non-NATO country, they can't be at war or about to be at war. Okay. Which is like, eh, hey, man, Canada needs some weapons? Please, by all means, you're not going right. to use them, yeah. right? Like, right. you're good. You're probably we're, we just want to exchange some funds right. here, right? And well, and it makes and it makes a certain amount of sense, right? right. But you know, in a context at a at a time, but yeah, it's a little and, different now. And fifty percent of the the there's one weapons manufacturer in Norway, and fifty percent of that is owned by the state. Yeah. So they had that rule in place until Russia invaded Ukraine. And then there was a shift, right, to say, like, actually, maybe we should send Ukraine some weapons. And it started last year um, in, I think, April of 2021 or 2022, sorry, sending anti-tank weapons, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And most of the parties are on board. But there's a huge political debate right now in Norway between most of the parties and the socialist parties. Okay. And this was a very funny thing, a very funny comment from, uh, from my, my colleague, Ulla, um, who was on a previous podcast at Pilot Project, I think. So he said, well, I guess to you, all of us are socialists. But these guys are really socialists. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. It's not just like, like socialists like, that, you know, like, hey, we want people to have health care. Right. Like, like, no. like if, if you have our political system with their political system, it would be their Bernie's. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so they're still fighting this battle. And there is there. Uh, maybe I shouldn't have said it that way. As Americans, I think it's funny how we always default to. War framed terminology for anything. We're fighting a battle. It's a, you know, that kind the of war thing. on poverty, right? Yeah. Which, war we, on which drugs. we apparently lost, but you know. also lost. <laughs> we should stop doing that because our win rate goes way down. Right. <laughs> and don't forget, uh, Carter, whip inflation now, or maybe that was. Yes. 
Also, Carter's not your go-to for marketing. Let's just let's just no. put it out there. Also, love the guy. Not love uh, the guy. Yeah. And, and if you're if you're a religious person, pray for uh, ex-president Carter right now. Uh, he's by our next pod, podcast. I yeah. think he will not be around. Yeah. Um, somebody who's truly actually exemplifies Christianity and the right morals. Anywho, so it's a big debate right now, right? You know, I, you know how do countries in Europe support you know support Ukraine? And yeah. I my suspicion is that several countries thought like, look, man, we'll throw some weapons their way, but they're going to lose. You yeah. know, we can kind of play both sides of this, right? Like, nobody can get too mad at us, but at the same time, we don't have a big commitment. Um, but here we are a year later, yeah. and Russia's down to uh, prison-recruited mercenaries, and uh, I think that's it, Which actually. makes her a great movie, not so much a actual fighting strategy, I suspect, but, you know. Uh, anyway, I wanted to bring that yeah. up. Uh, Norway, we're thinking about you. We're thinking about that divide. Uh, Israel, I, I know we're sometimes an Israeli politics podcast. I love the Knesset. Love it. <laughs> right. Great country. Right. No constitution, if you're wondering. No constitution. Right now, they're still going through this. Hey, look, we've brought back a prime minister who's under indictment for bribery and fraud, um, who... Uh, to get back in power, kind of joined with a bunch of very right-wing conservative parties, and now they want to strip the Supreme Court of the ability to override yeah. laws passed by the Knesset. Yeah. Um, and the biggest protests in the history of Israel are going on right now. Yeah. And and I have to say, like, I I often struggle with talking about politics related to Israel because, you know— I think just generally speaking, I have a real strong issue with right-wing governments, whether it's ours, whether it's somebody else's. And and by and large, that is what we've had in Israel in any recent time, right? And and it's interesting to see, you know, the, much more of the political divisions in Israel being more obvious right now because right. of what's going on there. Not that there isn't, you know, people who are have very strongly different opinions who live in Israel, but like— you know, with with this being such a sort of obvious fascistic move, people are uh, taking note of it. Yeah. It, uh, look, I think we always should come back to the fact that Israel is a very young democracy. America is a young democracy. Israel's been around a, a much shorter amount of time as a modern country, not as a, you know, yeah. not in the biblical sense, you know, and and that difference between people who see Israel as a modern political entity versus a religious biblical entity, and I guess it's not even the Bible, right? Because it's, it's really the Torah. That So, you know, the promised land was promised thousands of years ago. So, you know, we think about and talk about our divisions here they are much starker in places where they're driven by longer rooted yeah, kinds of sure. things. Um, and, and what I would say is, you know, the conservative or right wing kind of pieces of uh, the, the, the political atmosphere in, in Israel, 
are less about fascism and more about absolute belief in what they have is right. Benjamin Netanyahu, on the other hand, is, I would say, more on the opportunistic fascist side of things. For sure. Because he was liberal compared to all the conservatives before he was indicted and lost power. And then all of a sudden he got a, mo- a lot more conservative. So he used to speak out against these kinds of changes because yeah. they're not new in the, d- in the discourse. They've been around for a long time and he used to hate them. But now all of a sudden he relies yeah, it's on that convenient group of for him people. Now, yes, so. it is. Yeah. So if you lie down with dogs and so and yes. so forth. So, so uh, let's talk about beer before we switch to Chicago. Yeah, let's, let's uh, like take a quick, quick break. We'll talk quick about break. beer when we get back and then uh, we'll talk about Chicago politics. And we're back. And we're back. All right. Uh, so yes. So, so here we are. Yeah. We're at Forbidden Root. Yes. I mean, this space, when it was the last Band place, of Bohemia, yes. Band of Bohemia, was very cool and open, but a little dark. Food was great. Cocktails were actually out of this world. Yes. And, and I think... To be honest, given what we've already covered in the politics, it may be best at some point that we switch to cocktails because that's what we're going to need to cover this stuff, <laughs> right? No doubt. No doubt. I mean, like, I mean, hey, I know we're, we're in the ABV arms race, right? Yeah. So, like, 8%? Yeah, that's fine. But... Yeah, although I will say, like, if this was still Band of Bohemia, we wouldn't be recording a podcast here. No. Like, it was, it was, it was a Michelin-rated restaurant. It was, like, not really quite... Like, I loved going there. I loved the food, but it was not really a place to go hang out and do a podcast at. No, um, it was a little snooty. Yeah, I mean, snooty in a way that I like, but, you know, it's not really... Uh, you know, not really go hang That's out with the, the kids and the dogs kind of uh No kids and dogs kind of and beers. Right, no. exactly. So, uh, yeah, but uh, I've liked uh, Forbidden Roots' uh, move in here. Um, you know, the food is excellent. The beer is excellent. I, what have you been drinking? You've been uh, drinking ooh, yes, IPAs, yes, of course. I've but been, of course. So, um, uh, Ghost Tropic, which is, uh, you know, it's a, it's a hazy, it's a citrusy kind of thing. I, I've got to say, like, Ghost Tropic is one of my five favorite beers in Chicago. Um, really, really nice. solid. Um, I also had a Snoochie Boochies, which I love saying. And I will say, even if I'm not drinking the beer, which is, in fairness, another hazy IPA. Um, but doesn't have the almost creaminess and complexity of the Ghost Tropic. Uh, so I think the Ghost Tropic is an amazing beer if you can get it. I may I I encourage you to do that. You can get a four pack here at the at the brewery to yes, get yes. that. And this is the one on Ravenswood again. They have one in West Town. Yeah, um, just south of uh, two ninety. So you can go to the other venue there. And if you're listening to us uh, in Columbus. There is the Forbidden Root in Columbus, which is, to be honest, an amazing space. Yes. It's a huge, beautiful, amazing space. Yeah, well, and yeah, that'd be, that'd be good to see. Um, 
you know, and if you're one of our Norwegian listeners, you can fly to Chicago is probably your best, most direct route here. Um, and if you are, I'll buy you at least one beer. At least. Um, so, yeah, so then I had the, what did I have? I had the Heavy Snugs, which is listed as an oatmeal blonde ale. Um, but it has, like, some, like, it's, like, it was, you know, came kind of a wine-style glass. It was it had some raspberry vibes going on. Nice. Uh, really good. Uh, a little funk, maybe. Um, and then um, went from there to the Bonus Points, which is a Belgian-style golden ale. Um, and I'm really just enjoying the glass of this. It's like kind of like a one of those kind of like a like curvy bottom, kind of like slopes up as it goes up a little bit. Um, I don't know what style of glass is called, but you know, there you go. It's the Steve's favorite glass style for the moment. It is Steve's favorite glass because it has my beer in it. And, and I'll I'll say, you know, I really love the names of all their beers, and this is a thing that like. You know, you'll be talking to a beer bro. Uh, I don't know if that's been coined before, but it certainly is a thing. And they'll say to you, like, oh, well, I'm only going to drink beer with certain kind of hops. I like the citra, maybe a little mix of, you know, some of the Sultana hops. They're they're kind of hybrid, you know, like. But, no, you know, mostly we drink beer because of the name of the yeah. beer. Yeah. And He's probably, uh, like, wearing, like, a hat with, like, a specific name of some weird hybrid hop that nobody's I, no, ever heard we've of. already had this conversation. <laughs> And it worked for me. <laughs> Let's switch to Chicago. <laughs> Let us do that. Here um, we are. We are in the interregnum period, as I said before. Yeah, and we've been wanting to do this podcast for a little while. Had some scheduling issues. Had other things going on. So we're happy to finally do this. So maybe this is more of our almost pre-runoff uh, podcast well, it's, it's at this point. So and here's the thing. So our last podcast was immediately before the general election. It has taken this long for the results to settle out enough for us to be able to know what's really happening. Okay. Because here in Chicago, the way that this works, there's a, as you can imagine, a pretty big uh, early voting and mail voting period. And there's a decent window for mail votes to come in for people to check them. Yes. And so here we are. We've done all those now. We kind of know what's happening. And in a lot of wards, because, you know, you have to get a majority, 50% plus one vote. Um, you don't know what's happening until very late. Um, and therefore, it made sense for us to kind of wait until we're here at this position, especially with some of those individual ward results. So, and, and it's a funny thing about that that strategy because the the February election cycle is definitely geared towards driving down turnout and supporting incumbents. Yes. Because it's very hard to go do knock doors when it's, you know, February weather in Chicago. Yeah. But April, when the runoff is, kind of, you know, uh, is more conducive to some of the uh, the challengers. So here we are. Um, in that first election, there were 1.58 million voters. How many ballots do you think they were cast? 566,327. Boy, that is a great guess. <laughs> you win both showcases. <laughs> I may have read this uh, off right. here. But, yeah, so turnout was 
35%. Um, I don't know if you had any sense of like how that compares to sort of what is a typical election. It sounds sad, but probably not unusual. What I would say is it sounds sad, but American, right? Like, right. Um, so 35.8% Well, and I'm turnout. interested to see, like, how does that compare when we go to the runoff? Because on the one hand, the runoff is, like, it's, it, like, I feel like it'd be easy to forget, like, oh, yeah, we do a runoff here. But then, like, also, we've yeah. got it narrowed down for to two candidates. So, like, if you weren't sure who you wanted back and weren't necessarily going to have a strong opinion on it, now it's like, okay, this is clearly the person I want to choose. So, Well, and the real question is, if somebody didn't have a strong opinion about it, will they vote again? Right. And well, and you know, I mean, I could see not having a strong opinion, but being like, okay, like, you know, I like, you know, I like a more progressive candidate, but you know, I didn't know whether to pick Chewy or to pick, you know, Brandon Johnson or Paul Vallis. <laughs> so anyhow, um, so you know, look, and we're going to focus mostly on the mayor's race, where there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine candidates on the ballot. Yes. Um, which guaranteed that nobody was going to get above 50 50% plus much, Yeah, I mean, unless there was some right. candidate that was very clearly dominating. Yeah, and we um, said last time that we would really be, you know, focusing on who makes it to the runoff. Um, and, you know, there were really, I would say, four viable front runners. Yeah. We had, uh, yeah, we had Brandon Johnson, we had Paul Vallis, we had Lori Lightfoot, and we had Chewy Garcia. And, like, we, you know, we knew from the polling going in that those were the, you know, the, the ones who had a, a, a decent shot at it. Um, and inevitably, like, as it, you know, got to Election Day, things shuffled around a little bit. It looked like, you know, originally looked like it might be Vallis against Lightfoot in the, in the uh, runoff. But it turned out uh, Brandon Johnson had kind of the progressives consolidate behind him. Yeah. Um, Chewy fell off, and so that's you know that's what we have for the runoff is Brandon Johnson versus Paul yeah. Alice. And uh, just to answer your previous question, the turnout in the 2019 yes. election for the the general was actually lower. It was 35.4 percent, 45.45 percent. So fewer people, but, but voted you know that. within the margin of error, it's not a huge huge gap. No, there. it's yeah. not a huge gap. So a pretty, I would say, considered a typical election. Yeah, though, then if you think about the drop-off, you know, there was not a huge drop-off between, um, there were about a 40,000 vote drop-off between the general and the runoff in the last election. Okay. So not a huge, not a huge bit there. And if you look across the candidates, so... Um, Paul Vallis got 32%, let's call it 33%, yeah. uh, percent of the initial vote, which is a big percentage. Next, you know, Brandon Johnson at 21.6, and Lori was 16.8. Yep. Um, Lori conceded very early in the race. Yeah, it became clear she didn't have a chance. I think she was like, hey, it's been a good run. Yeah. I'm going to go back to being a lawyer, whatever it was. Um, but even, com you know, we've got 
a real race going into the runoff. Yeah. Um, and it's pretty pretty clear distinctions between Ballas and Johnson. I mean, Ballas is the one of the big backers of charter schools. Mm-hmm. Uh, Johnson uh, was backed by the CTU before well, he even CTU started teacher. Yeah, well, yes, and yes, back before by the CTU before he even started running, and then yes, back as he was yeah, a teacher. So, so Paul yes. Vallis was uh, the former CEO of Chicago Public Schools, um, appointed, of course, because that's how everything worked, and then had he then had similar roles in Philadelphia and in New Orleans, and you know. If you're paying attention to those things, if you're scoring at home, uh, some people would say that the pension crisis in Chicago started with Paul Vallis because of his decisions to do things. In Philadelphia, he had two of his, you know, sort of direct appointee right-hand people uh, indicted for embezzling money. And he several times went to the city council and said, oh, yeah, we're fine on finances. And then a week later, it's like, oh, or maybe we're down... 80 to 120 million in new orleans 83 or 84 percent of the schools are charter schools after the vallis yeah uh yeah and and you know so so where he has had a track record of governance it's been pretty poor um and people know who he is yeah and he's established himself as being the the pro-police candidate, basically, he's very, very clear. He wants to double down on more police, more busting skulls kind of approach to things, um, you know. And then also he appeared, uh, he, you know, at a group that is an anti-LGBT group. Yeah. Awake there, Illinois. Awake Illinois. So there's like he look, folks, he's a Republican. Let's let's be clear here. Like he's like. <laughs> he he yeah. may be a you know Democrat name, but he is definitely not because you 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 have to be a Democrat name in Chicago. Yes, yes. Right? Um, Johnson is is a very clear progressive, and so the distinction is very clear. And um, my advice to you would be if you want Chicago to have a, a nice future, <laughs> get out there and back Johnson. Um, you know, one of the one of the concerns I have is like. Whoever wins this race is likely going to oversee a decline in crime, not because of anything they've done, yeah. but just because the economy will be in a different position. And that is you know. a focal point of the Vallis campaign. Yes. right? And so crime. it'll be very easy for him to take credit for, oh, look what I fixed, even though he has nothing to do with it. Right. And the crime has actually declined over the last two years anyway. Yes. yes. So, um, yeah, so it's it's. I'm I'm a little worried about this election, to be honest. Like I, it, I think a lot of it's going to come down to who's endorsing. Um, you know, who does Chewy endorse? I think will be a big driver of this. Um, who does Lightfoot endorse? Might be. Um, we already have Willie Wilson has endorsed Vallis. So, well, the the Trump candidate has endorsed. You know, so what's really interesting is if you look at the map, right? Um, Paul Vallis won a lot of wards uh, near North Lake and sort of, I'm just going to say it, the white wards, Vallis yep. won. But in many of those, you know, who was second? It was Brandon Johnson. Yeah. Right? So, you know, there are places where it's like Paul Vallis, 35.6%. Um Brandon Johnson, 35.4. Yeah. 
Um, I do think the endorsements are going to make a big deal. Yep. They are going to push people. Um, we'll see. I, I wouldn't expect Johnson to carry many of the predominantly white wards, if I'm honest. I mean, Vallis was the only white candidate. Yeah. Um, the question is going to be, how do the Hispanic wards vote? And remember, we just went through a redistricting where wards were consolidated for the aldermen, not for the the mayor. All right. So yeah. we will see how that shakes out. There have been several aldermen, Raboyas, uh, for one, uh, who are part of the Hispanic caucus who have endorsed, you know, endorsed Vallis. Um, I think, in my mind, he is clearly a person who is going to continue to uh, reverberate right-wing talking points about quote-unquote parental rights, you know, and choice, which means defunding public schools. Um, Yep. And that is terrifying. So, hey, if you got some free time, go out and knock on some doors. Yeah. Make or some, even if you're uh, not going to do that, you know, reach out to your friends. Make sure that they're voting. Make yeah. sure that, you know, they're, they're I, you know, it's not even necessarily. I, I think it's spend less time trying to persuade that person who's on the wrong side of it and more time trying to get that person who is yeah. on the right side of it to show up and, and do that vote. That's a great point. I mean, as we said, 36% turnout is not much. Yeah. There are more every, people every who did vote who could have. Yep. So get those those folks out. So that's the uh, the mayor's race. Uh, the police councils where we do not have a runoff. Like it's just whoever the top three finishes were in, yeah. in each one uh, are are now there. And a pretty strong showing by uh, the progressive candidates. Um, yeah. The organization that was. So I believe this is the organization that was behind actually getting the ordinance in the first place. Uh, that made the police councils happen was the Empowering Communities for Public Safety organization. And they had 42 of the seats available uh, were people that bid that one were people that they had some backing for. I know they did some recruiting. Um, you know, the, the yeah. people were running on the slates. Like, that was all there. Police union, seven seats. So that gives you some perspective on it. I mean, That's good. And then there's, you know, the rest are filled in by other people, but... That really does give us a sense that, you know, if if that the police councils have some power, they can really have some influence on what's going to happen. Uh, when Lightfoot lost, um, the uh, police com- police commissioner, am I like police uh, police superintendent? That's the word there I'm going for. Uh, resigned, knowing that uh, both mayors or both of the mayoral candidates said they were going to replace him for, I'm sure, radically different reasons. Um, and so, you know, that's all going to be, you know, and the decisions around that will be driven by the police councils and who they recommend and, and all that. So, you know, we may have some real change going yeah. on. If, if Remember, if the police well. ta- councils will appoint people to a meta council. Yes. But the, the, still, The police council good. star chamber or whatever, and then, yeah. yes, and then they get to pick the list of people who then the mayor picks from. Uh, And there are two wards I want to kind of call out uh, that are still important and kind of 
I don't want to say surprises are undecided. So one is Ward 1. So uh, in the first ward, uh, the incumbent was Daniel Espada. Uh, there, were, there was a lot of money dumped into that campaign against him, including the former alderman, Rocco Joe Moreno. Yep. Um, who came back from presumably the dead uh, to to run again. Um, and people were really worried about this. And on election night, and this is why we had to wait, right? On election night, it was going to go to a runoff. Um, now, Joe Moreno only got 6.8% of the vote, but it looked like it was going to go to a runoff with Sam Royko as another kind of establishment candidate uh, against Daniel Laspada. But as the mail-in votes came in, Laspada climbed up to 50.1%. So of the 14,633 votes, he got 7,331. That is not atypical for Chicago. And then on the flip side of that, in 45, where you have an alderman who is... I don't know how to describe him other than the worst. <laughs> yes. Uh, Jim Garnier, who's, I don't know, he's under FBI investigation. He's had people he has appointed to jobs arrested. Um, on election night, he had 50.1% of the votes. And as it's gone on, that has gone down. So now he's got 48% of the votes. And Megan Mathias, one of the bevy of challengers, bevy, uh, is going to be running against him in the runoff. And look, again, if you're thinking about where to spend time, that's a great place, the 45th Ward. Yes. Um, we have 46, where uh, my preferred candidate, Marianne Lalonde, who was only lost out in the last election by a few votes. This was an open seat. Uh, she ended up finishing third, and now you've got a establishment candidate, Kim Waltz, against Angela Clay, who is the uh, sort of very, very progressive candidate. Um, Angela had the, the plurality of the votes, but now it's time for the runoff. You've got a lot of money backing Kim Waltz uh, against Angela Clay. Yeah. Another good place to look into and decide if you want to spend your time. Um, and, uh, you know, there were lots of disappointments across the wards, um, as there always are. Uh, but I also kind of wonder to myself, like, is this the time that we start talking about things like ranked choice voting? Well, you know, and I was going to say, you know, we talked a, bit, a little bit about the beginning about, you know, the... Um, the way our electoral system works and, you know, that we have runoffs, I think, in in the current si situation is a saving grace. Right. Because right now, Powell Vallis would be mayor if we didn't have a runoff. Right. So, you know, and so that gives you somewhat of a limited version of ranked choice. Right. Is like at least there's like, OK, these are the top two and and now we can we can vote from there. But, but um, the only reason that happens here is because we have essentially a single party system in Chicago. Correct. And by the way, Huey Lewis in the news sports is playing the entire album. I celebrate the their entire catalog. I do. Of course. Of course we do. 
Uh, so yeah, so um, one thing I, we didn't have in the agenda, uh, maybe we save it for Draft Politics Plus, is my day as an election judge. <laughs> oh my God, I am so sorry that I totally forgot no, about no, that. That's all right. It's burned into my brain. Uh, I'm not going to go too long on this, but just like real quick. Uh, longest day ever. Uh, woke up at four in the morning. That was the problem. You were already woke. Yes, I was already woke. That Yes, <laughs> my day would have been much better had I not been woke at that point. Um, day ended at 9 p.m. So what happened was, okay, so real quick, uh, you have five election judges assigned to each precinct. Okay. And so, you know, so like there, you've got your ward and then you get your precinct, right? And so you've got precinct, uh, precinct 20 is who I was uh, uh, working for. I don't know if that's my precinct because I don't keep track of these things, but I always early vote, so I don't even care. But, um, but that was the one I was at over at Lakeview High School. And uh, suppose I have five judges. We had three. <laughs> wow. Fortunately, we didn't have a huge surge. It was like kind of one of those all day. Like it was never busy, but it was never particularly quiet either. It just got a kind of constant flow. Um, and uh, it, it turned out that none of us had actually been an election judge before. Beautiful. So, so we walk in and it's like have to like set everything up, get it all running, and none of us has actually ever done this before. We had the training, which glossed over a lot of details. Fortunately, the election coordinator, who is not an election judge, uh, had familiarity with us, had done this before. One of the interesting things about this is the election coordinator is works for the board of elections. The election judges work for the court system. They're two totally separate things. The coordinator does registration, and they help like set up and tear down. But um, the but the actual like election judging is amongst those five hmm. people. In our case, three. So uh, that's how it plays out. And so at the end of the night, something that many of you may not know about, they do all the vote tallying or whatever, but they have to physically take all of the election materials to a central place to have the actual, like, you know, retain that information. So, like, yeah. you a got chain a ballot of custody. Count- yes, you have a chain of custody. So there's a ballot counting machine, and it counts all the ballots, and electronically, Thanks, those results are sent, you know, that evening. So Thanks, Smartmatic. Exactly. Uh, no, uh, Dominion Voting, actually. Um, so, you know, basically 30 minutes, 60 minutes after you close the polls, the election results have been transmitted to the system. Yeah, so, and that's why we get most of them back so quickly. But all of it is a paper ballot. Everything yeah. is tracked. So, like, we have a stack of ballots. Every single ballot is tracked. If we use a ballot, it goes into the system. We return that to the Board of Elections. If it is a ballot that is spoiled for some reason, we have to track that. If it is a... Uh, provisional ballot, we track that. Like, right. everything is tracked. Everything, so there, you cannot have a situation where a ballot disappears. Like, it's all kept through the system. But somebody has to physically take all that stuff to the Board of Elections at the end of the night. And the way it works is, not only are you supposed to have two volunteers that do this, technically you only need really one because you just need somebody to carry it over there. And you basically get to go stand in line while they, like, check to make sure you brought everything you're supposed to bring. Uh, And the number of people checking in was, like, 
two people. So, you know, so you get there, you shut down things as fast as you can, and then you wait in line. Fortunately, we were actually pretty quick for being our first time doing this and managed to get in there before too long. But you could wow. have been there probably till 10, 1030 at night, I'm sure. So, yeah, it was interesting. Also, there's no way you could steal an election. I'm just saying. Like, yeah. I, my, my take has always been it's too decentralized, comma, bro, with too many rando things in there yeah. for it actually to be stealable. And the amount of time spent on security tags, like, here's the thing. That voting, like, the, where you scan yeah. your ballot, there are no, sh- there are, there's a, like a dozen security tags on that thing. There's four to secure the box to the bottom of the box. There's four for the top of the box. There's one to secure the reader to the box. The reader itself has like another three or four <laughs> tags on it. And every single one of those, when you remove it, you check against the, the sign-in sheet to make sure it matches. Yeah. And then you, when you add a new one, you sign off on it. So you have a full wow. t- understanding of every single thing has ever been done with it. When you open the big blue box that has all your election materials in it, that has a security tag on it. When yeah, you close yeah. it up, you put another security tag on it. Like it, it, It's a pain in the ass, to be honest, but, but hard Worth to steal. It. So anyhow, that is, well, thank uh, you for sharing that. That is life as an uh, election judge. You should go and volunteer for it because we only had three, so clearly we need more. <laughs> anyhow. All right. I appreciate you. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for and, uh, uh, wa- knocking doors because I hate doing it. So. Yeah, it's the worst. Anyway, so, <laughs> no, you should do it. You should definitely do it. All right. Well, we'll be back in touch with you, if not before, then absolutely right after the completion of the municipal elections here in Chicago or whenever anybody is indicted federally. All right. And let's go, Brandon. Yes, let's go, Brandon Johnson. Good night, everybody. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.